Welcome to Pillow Voices, a production of Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, with content from the Pillow Archives. I'm Norton Owen, the Pillow's Director of Preservation, and it's my pleasure to introduce Pillow scholar Jennifer Edwards, who is also the Director-Producer of Pillow Voices. She will be your host for this exploration of why we dance, offering the perspectives of choreographers, dancers, psychologists, and audience members. Each time I journey into the archives at Jacob's Pillow, I simultaneously lose myself and regain a connection to my own journey with dance. The way my family told the story, I began to crawl, stand, and then took off dancing in such an obvious statement of desire that by age three, my great-aunt, who was herself a recreational dancer in her 70s, gave my mother money and told her to put me in ballet class. That drive toward movement, toward expression via dance, and the relationships forged between dance makers, their own bodies, and the witnesses of the work, or the folks we call audiences, is what we will explore in this episode of Pillow Voices. We begin with the most intimate and self-reflective, the physical feeling that a dancer has when they are in the audience experiencing a role that they themselves first danced as performed by another. Here is Steve Paxton, former member of the Merce Cunningham Company, a key figure in the Judson Dance Theater, and pioneer of a form called contact improvisation in conversation with scholar-in-residence Maura Keefe at The Pillow in 1998. So you were here last week when Cunningham was performing, and it's been... I was. It's been a, a few years since you performed with Cunningham, 61 to 64, is yeah, that, is that yeah. correct? So what was it like to see the performance of their work versus what you were doing 30 years ago with them? Yeah, I think maybe the most interesting moment was actually uh, seeing some of the steps that I did perform mm -hmm. actually still uh, current in their repertory. I don't know if you can know what it is to, um, I don't know, be a, a, a young performer, you know, learning these, uh, it was Suite for Five, which has a number of um, positions you just hit and hold, you know, which is perhaps one of the more taxing things to do on stage. And uh, so they kind of burned into my nervous system and they're still there. And so then to see this, um, to have this sensation reawakened in um, the Cunningham performances was quite, it's quite emotional in a way. It's like touching, my, my nerves are responding to what I'm seeing on stage in a very different way than they normally do. The other thing that happened actually was that uh, as an artist in residence here, I'm uh, offered seats that aren't uh, otherwise occupied by paying customers. and. Uh, uh, I was put in the front row, way down left, uh, audience left. And that puts your face right on the stage. And I was looking at people's toenails. I was looking at their feet and ankles uh, with an uh, un, un, unimpeded view. And up into their figures, you know, and then the perspective down the stage. And of course, it's up the diagonal. Uh, it was remarkable. It's a remarkable way to see it. I was. Fully engaged. They are doing While Paxton's account is certainly unique to his lived experience, this act of his nerves being awakened may be a more universal story than you'd expect. 
From 2008 to 2011, a study on kinesthetic empathy called Watching Dance was conducted through a partnership with four universities in the United Kingdom. The universities include University of Manchester, University of Glasgow, York St. John University, and Imperial College of London. The central hypothesis of this study focused on kinesthesia, or the sensation a person has in relation to movement and physical position. The study hypothesized that kinesthesia is central to consciousness and to the spectator response to dance. Watching dance researchers posited that dance audiences can experience physical and imaginative effects of movement without actually moving their bodies. That is, spectators can react, in certain respects, as if they were moving or preparing to move. Through monitoring audience members, researchers not only found this theory to be true, but found the highest response rates in people who were dancers or who had some dance training over the course of their lives. This becomes even more relevant when paired with studies that find large numbers of audiences for dance are in fact current or former dancers. In 2001, Dr. Thomas E. Backer visited the Pillow to lead a talk titled Getting Inside a Dancer's Head. Dr. Backer is a professor of psychology at California State University, Northridge, who has devoted his life to researching human behavior. A large area of interest for him is in the relationship between audiences and artists. He was joined in this discussion by dancers Marge Champion and Celeste Miller, though in this podcast we will hear only from Dr. Backer. Indeed, I think art exists in part because it illumines the contradictions that we all experience in the acts of living and dying of being human, and that's a part of what we're going to be talking about a little bit today. Twenty-two years ago, Marge Champion and I shared a stage in Los Angeles um, at a course that I taught about the relationship between artist and audience at UCLA. That uh, relationship has been a considerable part of my life's work, worked with artists, uh, dealt with cultural participation, um, not only the, the technical part, which has a really inelegant phrase. If you thought you were going to hear only technical stuff today, here's your first technical term. They call it getting butts into the seats. That's the term in cultural participation. But it's really more than that. It's more than selling tickets and getting people to come uh, to the theater or whatever it is. It's also looking at how arts influences our lives. And that's a part as well of what we're going to be talking about uh, today. My colleague Jerry Zaltman at Harvard University has developed a technique in which he asks people to cut pictures out of magazines to make up a kind of living mural of what the arts mean to them. And in a sense, that's what I'm going to ask you to do today, is to think about what dance means to you to cut some pictures you know, out of your head, out of experiences that, that you've had. I'm going to give you my list of um, about a half a dozen joys and a half a dozen stresses of being a dancer. And you know, I get to speak first because I'm the alleged expert from Los Angeles. But this list is only target practice for Celeste and for Marge and for everybody here to think about what dance means to you by looking more at what happens in the dancer's experience and how we relate to that uh, uh, when we're in the audience uh, watching a dancer on stage. Um, now, what I'm about to say probably doesn't have a whole lot of surprises in it for people who love dance, certainly not for those of you in the audience who are dancers or otherwise involved professionally in the dance community. What might be a little bit of a surprise to you is that some things that 
you have believed for a long time or that come out of your own experience. Now there's actually some research that helps to back up some concepts about um, what dance is about and how dancers relate to their audiences. Um, those of you who have heard researchers talk before, you may have heard the expression that research is the confirmation of the obvious at enormous expense. But the obvious sometimes needs to be confirmed so that we have a better way of talking about it, and that's what I'm going to be doing today. Anyway, I want to get through what I've got to say so that I can uh, also listen to Celeste and Marge and to all of you and have a conversation. So I'm about to give you two laundry lists. One is a laundry list of uh, the positives, the, the joyful side of being a dancer. And as you think about this, think about if you just saw a performance uh, this afternoon, what might have been happening on stage that looks like or that doesn't look like uh, what I'm about to say. And if you're seeing a performance tonight, the same thing. This is something that you can anticipate. So here's my list. First of all is the joy of sheer movement. You know, like Jules Pfeiffer's cartoon character, uh, the joy is not just in spring, it's in all elements of the dance. We've been moving since we were in the caves. Even animals move in rhythm, and there's a whole branch of animal studies that, that relates to that. So the joy of movement is one of the joys of being a dancer. Second, the chance for self-expression, to bring something into being. Now, as a matter of fact, there's now a fair amount of research that has to do with the particular elements of creativity that relate to dance into physical things. Uh, some of you may have read a book by a New Yorker writer called Malcolm Gladwell. And the book is called The Tipping Point. And Gladwell also has written about what he calls physical genius, that is, the physical elements of great talent and ability that until fairly recently got ignored in studies of creativity, so that dancers and other people whose genius is physical got kind of short shrift and now we're learning more things about how to measure that creativity and that's also a part of the the joy of dance is the joy of creative expression third to master a highly challenging skill we're learning all the time uh, from psychological research about how important what's called self-efficacy is to our psychological and even our physical health, how much we feel we're mastering the environment. And dancers get a chance to do that every time they come on stage. Fourth, the chance to fulfill the creative vision of the choreographer. Fifth, the opportunity to bring pleasure and the challenge of discovery and learning to the audience, to all of us who represent that here. Sixth, the chance to be a part of a profession that has many centuries of tradition behind it and sometimes, not always, even make a living from the profession. Seventh, and this is one that might not be quite so obvious, a recent study at the City University of New York found that the physical act of dancing increases creativity. That is, if you give a dancer a creativity test before the dance, whether it's rehearsal or performance, and test them again with the same test afterwards, their level of measured creativity goes up. And there's a pretty good reason why that may be true, that physical exercise releases endorphins into the brain, and that also is a stimulant for creativity. So uh, dancers have that uh, advantage as, uh, as well in terms of actually being more creative as a result of the, uh, of the work that they do. Eighth and finally, another one that comes out of recent science, dance reduces stress. I have a colleague uh, at uh, the University of Maryland, a dance researcher named Judith Hanna, who's written a whole book on the uses of dance to reduce stress. In the work that I do with other kinds of creative people, 
What I usually say at some point in the talk is if you only do one thing to deal better with stress, get 30 minutes of large muscle movement exercise every day. Well, guess what? You don't have to tell dancers that. That's built into the work that they do in preparation as well as, uh, as in performance. And that also turns out to have uh, an important um, uh, concomitant in reducing stress uh, for, for dancers just as a basic part of their work. I found a quote from a dancer called Buffy Miller who used to be at the Feld Ballet that I think kind of sums up um, the, uh, the points that I'm making here. She says, dancing engages your body, mind, and spirit in such a complete way that it's both thoroughly exhausting and thoroughly thrilling. It uses your whole self. That's what I love about it. Dancers bring all of those joys to the stage every time they perform. Backer goes on to share a second list of stressors that dancers face, which are not as germane to this exploration. However, I won't leave you hanging. He talked about the short careers that many dancers have, lack of money, lack of health resources, and things like eating disorders and substance abuse that are unfortunate factors in all athletic and physically challenging pursuits. But Dr. Backer touched on points of the why. Why dancers dance? And that is a question I feel is worth delving into a little bit deeper. As it turns out, this is a fairly common question asked by audience members during post-show talks. And so I teased out two responses because they underscore a difference in lived experience that we don't often highlight in dance. The story that I opened with, one of a small girl encouraged by a family member to channel her physical expression into a dance class, is fairly common. But there is a wide range of inspiration that drives people toward a wide range of types of movement. Following the 2016 performance of a piece titled, And Still You Must Swing, in conversation with scholar-in-residence Suzanne Carboneau, tap dancer Derek Grant responds to the question, Who inspired you to dance? I find Grant's description of two men who moved him to dance fascinating because their performances seem to exemplify opposite ends of a spectrum. One seems to dance as though his life depends on it. The other seems to revel in the form itself. Uh, I, would, I would have to say um, Jimmy Slide and, and Lon Chaney uh, because they were two different types of people. Jimmy Slide was a beautiful dancer, somebody who, who used to use the term uh, dressing and undressing the stage. Um, he was in love with dance. He was in love with music and jazz. Um, and you could tell just by watching him. Um, Lon Chaney was a very rough man. He, was, he learned how to dance in prison. Um, he was a strong bad guy of sorts. And um, every time he danced, it looked like it was his last day on earth. He danced like it was going to be the last time he would get to dance um, every time. And so as a child, it, it scared me, but I was fascinated with it. Um, and I just had to know what makes somebody like that work, what, what drives somebody so hard like that. So I, I was pretty obsessed with those two people as a young man um, growing up and certainly hope that I do them some kind of justice now that I'm in their shoes. In 1998, former New York City ballet principal dancer Edward Valella spoke with scholar-in-residence David Gere. Valella shares that at first he took dance class because his sister was enrolled, and his family thought it would help him channel and structure his physical energy. 
But it was Valella who chose to take his training to the professional level, against his father's wishes. Here, he talks about what to him distinguishes the physicality of dance from sport, and he touches on ideas of masculinity in the United States and as it relates to dance and ballet. Look, I'm a, a pure blue-collar person. I'm not an intellectual. I'm a guy from Queens. My father drove a truck. Uh, it, and, and yet, I, I have delight in movement, in the physical thing of movement. And when I watch sports, it's, to me, it's, it's not so much that somebody's going to win or lose. It's how the game is played. When you watch a double play turned or you watch a, a, a wide receiver and the moves that they make and basketball, I mean, these are, these are phenomenal physical activities. However, if you were one of those guys, and I've worked with so many of these guys, and you begin to imply rules and regulations, a technique, a standard, if you begin to say to them, you have a vocabulary, you have positions that you have to move through to hit a home run or drop a three-point shot in or something. It gets to be a very different idea. We have a formalized sense of gesture. And, and, and it's, it's attacked because it has that formality and it has this courtliness and it has an elegance. And this is kind of a, um, a Marlboro country. You know, it's, it's kind of that idea. You know, you're beginning to speak about something I, I, I wanted to ask you specifically, which is what were the notions of masculinity that you were taught at home and what were they in contrast to what George Balanchine was teaching you about masculinity? First of all, let me say it very fast. I was the only Italian in an all-Irish neighborhood. <laughs> so I learned how to behave in, in my neighborhood. I noticed that whenever you talk about that neighborhood, oh, yeah. the shoulders hunch and the arms kind of come up protectively. That's what it was. Yeah. You had to speak another language, which was physical. We just spoke a physical language. And then, of course, that's what we do as artists. We have taken what is normal and, 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 and human, the normal part of human gesture, and we have formalized it. We have put it in line and structure and form. And we've started to relate it to so many things, like time, but also music. And what that also implies on on time and style and period and um, theater. Who are you on that stage? Relationships. How do you relate to somebody on stage? How do you move an audience? And it, it, it's, um, it's wonderful. It, it beats sports uh, for me from a physical point of view. I, I did an awful lot of them. Uh, but there's no, no sport like this where, where your mind is what your audience eventually respects. Building on this idea of cerebral engagement and the relationship between dance maker, dance witness, and the sharing of ideas, here is award-winning choreographer Faye Driscoll in 2017 in a conversation with scholar-in-residence Suzanne Carboneau. They talk about her piece, Thank You for Coming, the first piece in a triptych of work each evening-length work takes over two years to craft with the cast. So, Faye, um, this idea of the audience, you, oh, okay, you yeah. very different um, relationship to the audience, in, in mm -hmm. certainly in this project, um, mm -hmm. Ben. You're, you're not behind the proscenium. Yeah? Mm -hmm. We're not looking into a frame. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about how, what you think about your relationship to the audiences and what you're, uh, what you're trying to do with them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
It's interesting in this form that, you know, it, it, it on some level never fully comes into existence until there's a witness, you know, so there's this like really just deep dependence on the audience and need for the audience to mm -hmm. be there. Um, and I think in this work in particular, that was just that, that sensation of, um, of need or interdependence is what I was trying to actively amplify and bring out. I often have intentions in the work that are kind of like, um, you know, impossible, you know, um, like, and sometimes they succeed or sometimes they don't, or sometimes they succeed for some and not for others. But uh, this one, I wanted to create a sensation of physical interconnection. Mm -hmm. um, and in the next one, I wanted to, in the second one, I wanted to create, I wanted to make a story that would destroy the constraints of story through story. <laughs> so there's wait, things. Wait, can that you say that again? I wanted to create some <laughs> kind of a story that you would that you would follow somehow, but you would also the the constraints of story would be destroyed, like the structures of narrative that we live by would be um, opened and shifted, mm -hmm. but through um, through simultaneously the making of a story, so um, that's really hard. And sometimes people say something to me that seems they, they got exactly that, and other times people had a whole other experience, and I am okay with that, like I let that be. It, at that point, I do come to what do I feel is this is doing, and is this doing that something that feels like it has integrity for me? Mm -hmm. And that might mean that it's hated or loved, mm -hmm. or hated or loved at the same time, <laughs> or it might mean it's hated now and loved in 20 years, or vice versa. Are you talking about your audience? I'm talking about the audience. Yeah, okay. yeah I'm mm -hmm. talking about the audience. So mm -hmm. I think I, I, I need them, and I'm also kind of trying to go like, don't get, like, in my, don't get too in my head. <laughs> because there's some kind of, there's an internal track that I must follow, mm -hmm. that I must listen to. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean I'm like, I don't give a shit what they think, mm -hmm. or I don't, you know, it's mm -hmm. just, yeah, mm -hmm. excuse my language. Um, uh, but you, you've, defi you've definitely, in this project that you're doing right now, um, broken down all kinds of assumed, assumed, well, you've changed the assumed relationship mm -hmm. between performer and um, audience member. And um, you've made me really think not to say audience anymore. <laughs> um, each member of the audience, um, each person. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I think um, um, that had to be. I mean, I, I I look at I look at your performers and how they are doing that, and think that must be. It's an amazing thing, but it has to also be a scary thing mm -hmm. to be doing, yeah. um, both for audience members who are saying, what is going on here? And also for mm -hmm. um, you as you as people who are um, coming into a space and asking people to have a different role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why it, it, it takes two years. You know, because the role is so different and so unexpected, and so and it's being made anew. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that the labor needs to go into that. That's not something we can just dive into and be like, okay, I get this, let's do it. It's something we need to really. We are like kind of growing new bodies together to figure out how to do this thing, and the skills for being able to do the show are being made alongside the show. Mm -hmm. I'm learning new skills. They're learning new, mm -hmm. new skills. Mm -hmm. So this certain type of uh, engagement and the certain type of presence, a certain type of casting of audience. Mm -hmm. and In this Pillow uh, Talk, 
titled Connecting Artists and Audiences. Carboneau asked Driscoll about how she approaches creating an evening-length work. Hmm. I tend to I tend to sprawl. Um, I tend to um, start in the world often in, in books and in um, art that I see in and things I see on the street and in encounters I have and um, kind of formulate. Um, yeah, I guess it's a sort of a sort of nexus of ideas that are going on for me, and then I'll come. There's sort of that's one beginning, and then another beginning will be. Um, the moments in the room with the performers where I'm, I'm taking sort of whatever's like percolating and generating in me and bringing it into um, action and bringing mm -hmm. it into, you know, image-based improvisations or movement material maybe I've played around with or um, dialogues or writings or... And then from there, that's sort of another seed or a, so another mm -hmm. friction that's created that... And I'm also often thinking about the stage. What's what's the stage? What's mm -hmm. the space? Um, what's around? Like, do you mean the actual I place the you will be performing, or do you mean how you are going to create the space that you're performing in? I mean both. Because sometimes, mm -hmm. if I know where I'm making it for, that that specific space mm -hmm. will be in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm also thinking about, you know, often like tracing the ghosts of the audience, um, you know. Like, sorry, it's <laughs> a reference to a conversation I had um, with Lindsay the other day. But I'm, I do have this sort of thing where I'm, as I think about the work, there'll be moments where I think about the witnesses of the work. So I think about the space, and then I think about um, the potential witnesses, oh, like I the see. potential audience, the potential placement of them, mm -hmm. the potential impact. Mm -hmm. But it's not, that's not weighing too heavily on my mind. It is just there mm -hmm. in the beginning. Mm -hmm. While we have only scratched the surface of a topic as vast as the breadth of the history of dance artists and each person who has experienced their work, I'm afraid we must close. I think, though, that the most important takeaway, from what I can tell, is to show up. Show up and be a witness. Have the experience of your neurons firing and your brain making connections for yourself. Studies have also shown that sometimes folks don't come to live performance because they're afraid they won't understand it. So I'd like to leave you with a story shared by the Wonder Twins, a hip-hop duo featured in a 2014 piece produced by The Pillow titled Unreal Hip Hop. Somebody said to us earlier today, he was like, I loved your set you did yesterday. I don't know what it was. <laughs> and for us, that's a, it was actually a compliment. I wasn't offended at all. Not at all, because he sat there and he watched it. And that's more important than anything, is watching what we do and what we come up with, for, I think for most artists. That's it for this episode of Pillow Voices. Thank you for joining us today. On behalf of Jacob's Pillow, we look forward to sharing more dance with you through the films, essays, and podcasts at danceinteractive.jacobspillow.org and of course, through live experiences during our festival and throughout the year. Special thanks to the National Endowment for the Arts for helping launch this podcast series. Please subscribe to Pillow Voices wherever you get your podcasts and visit us again soon, either online or on site.